Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and this is the last episode in a short series about digital health in Asia. In the first episode, you got a global overview of the region with Julian de Celebrary from Gallon Growth Asia. In Q1 of 2019, Asia-Pacific Digital Health raised more funding than the US. And that's despite the, um, the current geopolitical differences between the US and China. That's a report we release every six months. We tend to always focus on those countries such as India and China, uh, largely because they are the, the gorillas in the room. And then, of course, we focus on the markets that have substantial share of the ecosystem. Singapore being a case in point, whereby because of the nature of Singapore as a trading nation, as a geopolitical, shall I say, center of, uh, of Southeast Asia and various other attributes, it attracts an awful lot of ventures. With regard to the other markets, we do track them very carefully to refer one of the countries you, you spoke about. Vietnam at this stage is is certainly a fast-moving, burgeoning, roughly speaking, has one to two percent ecosystem share. Vietnam, I would suggest, um, based on the data we have, has an emphasis on more patient journey type innovation. Uh, Southeast Asia, or should I suggest uh, Asia, excluding Japan, Korea, China, India, Australia, is, is certainly in the last 12 months seen a very strong growth, both in terms of birth of innovation, but also in terms of a focus from investors and from multinationals such as uh, big pharmaceutical companies. The second episode presented China with Julie Wang. I think Chinese entrepreneurs in the digital health space are more open to working with governments and they have more sophisticated strategy of how they actually work with the governments and navigate the difficulties and complexity in the healthcare system. I think that's one of the things the Western entrepreneurs could potentially learn and, and don't, you know, from a mindset level don't avoid working with the government when they think about their strategy and their go-to-market plan. The third episode, India with Sunil Anand and Kartik Dar from Project Echo. India, I think, has taken the lead at a global level when it comes to uh, digitizing and taking everything from a platform perspective. The first uh, implementation of this was the Aadhaar project, which was the a national identity project where we have 1.3 billion Indians who have a, a digital identity and this is of course an identity which can be reused across uh, various other uh, applications. I think that when it comes to healthcare a similar approach definitely is possible and the central government uh, think tank uh, unveiled a blueprint which is called the national health stack which is a, a very ambitious plan for you know creating interoperability standards and data sharing across various entities in the ecosystem um, that includes uh, electronic health records that includes health analytics uh, and you know the coverage and claims platform that is the uh, part of the modi care uh, umbrella as well and as well as echo which we are looking to plug in as part of a platform for upskilling of these health practitioners and the previous episode about singapore was presented by Tony Estrella. Singapore uh, is held in very high regards as a, a country that epitomizes the best of healthcare uh, and where it can go. And I think, like many things in Singapore, 
there's a, a large part of that that's a designed component, uh, meaning that the government was very active in thinking through um, how to create the right uh, system and infrastructure to help its citizens really elevate uh, amongst other countries globally. Today, you will be listening about the development in South Korea. South Korea is famous for many things. Worldwide, the Republic of Korea has by far the highest robot density in the manufacturing industry. Korea is the third largest market for virtual currency behind the United States and Japan. The country is also called the plastic surgery capital because of the cultural beauty obsession. According to a recent Gallup poll, one in three South Korean women have undergone cosmetic surgery between the ages of 19 and 29. Beauty trends are dictated by the K-pop industry. And South Korean government is even trying to limit stars' presence on television because the stars look too much alike. In the healthcare sense, South Korea managed to pull off what many other countries crave for, a substantial healthcare reform. The reform took place in early 2000s and healthcare is financed through national health insurance covering the entire population. From the digital perspective, to establish big data in the medical field, the nation is currently gathering the medical records of about 50 million people from 39 hospitals nationwide by 2020. Despite all the technological progress, surprisingly, telemedicine is illegal in South Korea. You will hear why from today's speaker, Ogan Gurel, a doctor, professor, entrepreneur who has been living in South Korea for the last nine years. His teaching experience includes cellular and molecular biology, neuroanatomy, bioinformatics, mathematical modeling and technology marketing at Columbia, Roosevelt, Harvard and currently Digist. And he has also served as an independent consultant to several medical device firms in which he was specifically involved with both European and FDA clinical trial development and oversight. Enjoy the discussion, but just before that, a quick announcement. Faces of Digital Health has a new official website. You can browse through the archive of the episodes, read blog posts accompanying each episode, and find more information about the show at www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. As you can read on the website, your support is the fuel for the show. So if you enjoy the content, do leave a rating or a review in iTunes. It really makes a difference, especially since listeners can only see reviews from their own country. So any comment helps more listeners discover the show. Thank you for your support. I highly appreciate it. After all, this series about Asia came to life because half a year ago, a listener asked if I plan on covering Asia more broadly. So now, let's go to South Korea. Ogan, is it true that you're fluent in French, Turkish and German and have conversational ability in Russian? Well, yes, I worked in France and Germany and uh, was originally born in Turkey. So I have some facility with those languages. Actually, I'm forgetting them a little bit, I should say, because I've learned a lot of Korean since being in Korea for about nine years. So my Korean is actually quite good. But uh, I do try to practice my French and German and Turkish and so forth because I enjoy learning languages and you know, always meet different people and travel a lot. 
How did you learn all these languages? How did you travel from one country to the other? Uh, you were born in Turkey, but you got a medical degree in the U.S. So uh, how did you end up in South Korea in the end? I think the best way, of course, to learn a language is to be in that country or where people speak a lot. I always made it a point when I was uh, working. I worked in France at the Institut Lao Langevin in Grenoble between college and medical school and collaborated with the group there quite frequently. And then I did some clinical trial and consulting work in Germany. Uh, of course, I traveled to Turkey to see family and now here in Korea. And in all of those circumstances, I tried to learn uh, uh, as much as possible languages, both obviously talking with people, but I take the opportunity to study a little bit as well. Uh, so it would synergize with my immersion experience. And in fact, what was interesting is when I went to France after my college, as I said, between college and medical school, I was actually quite embarrassed that my French was not so good, having taken high school French, and it was not one of my best subjects. I was much better at science and math and so forth. But sometimes your weakness, you turn into a strength because I focused quite a bit on it, recognizing that it was not necessarily so easy. So ever since then, which was quite a while ago, Uh, I've always been tried to be actually quite diligent in recognition of the fact that I'm actually not so good at languages. It forces me to spend time and focus. So that's how I've learned a lot of languages. Uh, in terms of coming to Korea, that was nine years ago, and I was recruited by Samsung, specifically the Samsung Advanced Institute of Technology, which is their central corporate research lab, and uh, within which is the CTO office for Samsung Electronics. And it was in that capacity, uh, technology strategy, particularly around healthcare, that I uh, joined uh, Samsung. Uh, that was their motivation because they were going into healthcare. But I had my own motivation to join Samsung because my research interest ever since college has been in the area related to bioelectronics. And uh, to the extent that Samsung was going into healthcare, uh, potentially very disruptive in the field with new approaches. And the bioelectronics, specifically terahertz medicine that I'm very interested in, I thought that would be a good fit for my own professional and personal goals. Where was digital health uh, thinking in South Korea and at Samsung when you were there? That was between 2012 and 2015. Quite a lot has changed by today on a global scale. Samsung actually originally, when I first joined nine years ago, Samsung Electronics, the healthcare mandate was quite broad and was not just digital healthcare. I mean, obviously, Samsung is famous for making chips, semiconductor chips and mobile phones and so forth. Uh, but what we were doing was looking at a quite a wide variety of technologies, all the way from high throughput DNA sequencing, microRNAs, surgical robotics, fairly advanced imaging techniques and so forth, in addition to digital healthcare, uh, which was not that big a part of it. That being said, things evolved at Samsung Electronics, so that very broad and aggressive healthcare focus was uh, quite circumscribed and pulled back after changes in the leadership. And now the digital healthcare, I think, would be fairly more limited. I mean, some may argue with that, but uh, it's basically focused more on the wellness side and uh, trying to get as much synergy as possible with uh, the mobile business and smartphones and so forth, as opposed to completely forging two new areas and new paths, particularly in the more medically oriented therapeutic and diagnostic side. 
In 2018, for MENA FN, you talked about the so-called Korean gravity, which you said is an obstacle to faster breakthrough of solutions globally. Well, first of all, I should say it's a generalization. There are always exceptions. But this concept of Korean gravity is related to two things. One is the ambitions and the sort of goals of individuals and companies in Korea are, are typically quite ambitious. Uh, it's very admirable here that uh, they're always aiming for you know first class, world class, being very global, you know, very top uh, ambitions. Uh, the challenge is that sometimes when these are implemented, so to be global first class, you actually have to you know, be totally different and forge a new path and not just follow a fairly defined uh, program, that gets very discouraging or tricky. Or if you want to be very global, you actually have to work with quite a bit of foreigners and you know, do a lot of travel and engage outside your, your comfort zone. And then that becomes very tricky as well. So what I found is sometimes the a mismatch between the ambitions and then at some point, people and institutions revert to their comfort zone and don't enact those ambitions. So I call that the Korean gravity. I mean, it's not specific to Korea, but I think I've seen it quite a bit here. Does this mean that uh, the companies are more focused on the uh, home market? Because, for example, South Korea caught the attention of the global digital health community last year with the announcement that 25 miles out of Seoul, the capital of uh, South Korea, a futuristic hospital with hologram visitors, indoor navigation, facial recognition security, and so on, is supposed to open its door uh, next year. Yeah, I haven't heard about it. I wouldn't be surprised if there were a lot of announcements and uh, ultimately nothing happened or very little happened. That being said, you know, quite a few miraculous things have uh, occurred in Korea. It's a tremendous progress and so forth. So I don't mean to kind of discount that. I think that in certain ways, this Korean gravity, in a way, also reflects the downside of the success. In other words, Korea is quite advanced and developed. And to some extent, these ambitions to be global and to be you know, really great, which was absolutely imperative during the development drive in the 1970s and 80s, when Korea was you know, quite poor, actually. There's no gravity because people were quite, uh, you know, at a much lower level. But now uh, I see a certain complacency and, uh, you know, you don't actually have to do all that to be uh, moderately successful. But I, I think that that's actually mistaken. Global competition continues, even if you're at a high level and pre perhaps it's even more intense. So I, I think that Korean gravity can be an important challenge. Now, what's also interesting is the Korean economy per se, which I believe is the 11th largest in the world, is actually big enough to support with reasonable success a domestic market. Uh, and that's actually, in a sense, a negative thing because uh, startups can be moderately successful just addressing the local you know, domestic market. If you contrast that with Singapore, for example, or some other fairly 
active countries, you know, Latvia, even Sweden, and so forth, that's doing a lot of innovation. If they focus on their local market, they will categorically not be successful. I mean, a a Singaporean startup in digital healthcare that's aiming for the Singapore market, uh, obviously can start with that. But if that's their ambition and their goal, they will never truly be successful and uh, certainly not be a unicorn or anything of that sort. Korea is tricky because the market is big enough to kind of be okay. But if you only address the Korean market, you will not also not really be successful. You'll not necessarily be globally competitive and you're certainly not going to be a unicorn. So that's part of the challenge is that some of the entrepreneurs and you know other leaders they you know may have these wider ambitions and then they say well maybe I'll just stick with Korean market it's good enough. Can you think of any examples that illustrate uh, the front front runners or the most successful solutions for example in the personalized medicine uh, specter so because uh, South Korea has a culture of early technology adoption uh, and combined with uh, the country's strong computing infrastructure and biological research strengths the country is supposed to be an obvious personalized medicine testbed they may not always be the earliest to develop the technologies, but certainly Korea is a great place as a market to test as well as uh, build out you know, new technologies. And I would encourage global companies to consider Korea as that kind of a test bed. And obviously, in some areas, Korea is also first and leading the way, 5G and, and things like that. Uh, personalized medicine, you know, I think that that is to be very honest, not really implemented across the board, you know, not necessarily in Korea, but anywhere, quite frankly. I mean, there are examples in specific areas, particularly around cancer, breast cancer, and so forth, where there are elements of personalization related to genetic profiles and so forth. And so there are these pockets of personalization. As far as broad, sustainable initiatives here in Korea or around the world, for that matter, I think we're still waiting for that. That being said, Korea does have uh, infrastructure, as you also mentioned, and a lot of hospital processes that are quite advanced. Uh, I think Korea, in particular, for example, the Seoul National University Bundang Hospital, SNUBH, has some of the world's best EMR, electronic medical records. Uh, and I wouldn't call that personalized medicine, you know, explicitly so, but they have the framework to do a lot of that. And in isolated areas, as I mentioned, they are doing that. A work in progress, I should say. What's so specific about this EMR that you mentioned? Does it have, for example, structured data, which could be a good uh, base for artificial intelligence algorithms development? It's very good because it has a great user interface. It has a wide variety of data that's captured. It's certainly amenable to AI analysis. I've seen it in action. Uh, I know that they are uh, working on global solutions, not just Korea. Again, you know, hopefully the Korean gravity effect will not prevail, but uh, it's a very impressive system. I think it's well-primed for some of this personalization and AI in terms of the data that it collects and uh, the user interface that it has. And... Uh, all the different functions. 
it's interesting to me that you mentioned the importance of the user interface because uh, in terms of arguments regarding the importance of healthcare IT design, I thought that the, the sentence by one of the NHS uh, functions was usability is a clinical safety issue. So I thought that this sentence uh, so well defines how important it is, uh, how doctors use the system. And you, you are an MD yourself. Yeah, that's exactly right. As I think I mentioned earlier, I taught at uh, Sun Kyung Kwan University, Samsung Advanced Institute of Health Sciences and Technology, and I taught a mini MD course, and I do that around the world as well. Uh, there's a, a next version of the course is being offered next week in Singapore. And this mini MD is a comprehensive overview of all of medicine for non-doctors. And my philosophy of that is whether it's uh, biomedical scientists or IT engineers, Uh, they really need to know how doctors think and how medicine works to implement their solutions. And I think, uh, particularly in the IT industry, in a lot of the American EMR systems, had a big disconnect between you know, how the IT world works and how the medical doctors work. And to that has in inhibited uh, usability, impaired usability. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, as you know, the EMR penetration Uh, electronic medical record usage rate in the United States, despite you know billions of dollars, perhaps hundreds of billions of dollars uh, at this point, has been less than uh, anticipated. And in fact, uh, many people will call it disappointing. I don't know the exact statistic, but I think it would be less than you know maybe around 50%. percent. Whereas here, as I mentioned, at Seoul Bundang National Hospital, Seoul National University Bundang Hospital is based is basically 100%. percent. And I would say throughout Korea, we're talking about above 90, 95% utilization. Since you mentioned the United States, so what's your comparison of the U.S. healthcare system and the uh, Korean healthcare system and your personal experiences, perhaps? Well, I have uh, experienced professionally as well as personally as a patient. And I think that uh, the American healthcare system is actually completely different kind of system from you know most any other system in the world so that's in a category by itself the american healthcare system is there are a lot of good people there and uh, i have a lot of friends who are practicing doctors and you know lots of people trying to improve the system but it's quite dysfunctional people have been saying for years it's not sustainable whether it's at the cost rate or the, the medical errors or the complexity and the outcomes being less than uh, hoped and so forth, it's uh, not sustainable. Uh, of course, people have said that 10 years ago and 20 years ago, and somehow the system still struggles along, but it's completely in a different category. Uh, Korean healthcare system is, is what we would call a national health insurance and a private provision of care. So it's not like the UK NHS, which is both national insurance as well as national care. It's a, a mixed model. And uh, I think uh, the Korean healthcare system is one of the best in the world. It is very efficient. And I think access is actually quite incredible, you know, apart from perhaps very far rural areas. Korea is not such a big country, of course, but it's still spread out. It's amazing how easy access to healthcare is. I mean, you basically, you have a problem, you go to your internal medicine doctor, internal medicine doctors uh, every few blocks. Uh, you don't have to go to the emergency room. You don't have to go to an academic medical center. Uh, access to healthcare, which I think is very important, is quite easy 
in Korea. If you have access to healthcare, that uh, you know, makes the cost go up. But if you can catch problems early and access healthcare on a you know, preventative basis or at least an early diagnosis basis, you will save a lot of costs. You contrast that with the United States. You know, if you want to see a primary care doctor, you basically have to schedule an appointment. And I'm just guessing, but most people will probably not be able to get an appointment earlier than three months for a primary care doctor. If they want to see the obstetrician gynecologist, you know, maybe four or five months. So guess what? You know, you go to the emergency room and it's not oh. you know, medical doctors know that that's not the best type of practice, but access to care is actually quite difficult. In the United States. While you were still living in the US, you went on an interesting journey. You basically walked between two cities to get uh, an on the ground perspective of the healthcare system. This was in 2009, around when uh, the whole Obamacare was being debated. I remember President Obama at that time was saying that he was getting the opinion of experts which were basically health insurance executives, pharmaceutical executives, you know, health policy experts, and you know all these experts. And it was very strange to me because as a doctor, you know, we learned that the patient is foremost. And there's a phrase attributable to Sir William Osler, a famous uh, physician from the, the 100 years ago, listen to your patient, they are telling you the diagnosis. So we're always, as doctors, trained to think about, you know, obviously the patient. And so the fact that, you know, ordinary people were not being engaged in this discussion, and Obama actually later implemented some town halls, and there were some discussions related to that. But at least in the early stages, it seemed he was focusing on, quote unquote, the healthcare experts. And I guess I was, you know, in that category, but I still thought that that was insufficient. I wanted to get more what I would call the voice of the people. So I walked from Chicago to Washington, D.C. I was living in Chicago at that time. It's about 700 miles, a thousand kilometers. It took me about a month. Uh, and during the day when I was walking, I would just be talking with people, uh, getting their stories and uh, documenting them. Uh, and then I would stay at a hotel and arrange for the luggage to be sent to the next hotel. And there were some colleagues in Chicago organizing all of these logistics. So I focused on the walking and, and getting those opinions. And eventually, when I reached Washington, D.C., met with several lawmakers, including Dennis Kucinich, who was a leading proponent of the public option and single-payer health care at that time. So he was quite attracted to these stories, and he ended up publishing them in the congressional record. So they are memorialized there and were shared with, uh, essentially, the public. Uh, obviously, I got consent for these stories, and some of them, they gave consent for the pictures, some, you know, just for the stories, uh, some were anonymous, and so on and so forth. So I got all these stories as the voice of the people. What's interesting is I myself did not propound a particular opinion. Uh, about which way the debate should go. I was trying to serve more as a vehicle for collecting and transmitting these stories, which I thought was very important, in fact, central to any kind of healthcare reform debate. Even though some uh, media caught your project and tried to ask you about your findings and about your opinion, they quickly got lost their interest because uh, exactly what you said, you didn't form a specific opinion, you didn't take sides. 
Well, that's very interesting because this was in 2009. And as I walked, you know, on the ground, as it were, I got a sense of the interesting changes in the media and its connection to the polarization of politics in the United States. Now, in 2009, things were getting quite polarized, uh, but we didn't have the kind of circus that you sometimes see nowadays that's going on where the opinions of those who are most uh, sort of crazy or most uh, loud or most entertaining become a lot more, how should I say, listened to. And uh, this was a, you know, a little bit of a generalization, but I, I almost got the sense that unless I kind of you know, made a kind of show of my own opinions and started to really give some aggressive opinion on one side of the fence, then it wasn't so interesting. Uh, but if I got there and I started to spout on about all sorts of crazy theories or, you know, just act weird or wild or whatever, I think the entertainment value would have been greater. And I think I would have garnered you know, more attention. But as I said, I was trying to be quite neutral and instead just transmit, collect and transmit these stories of people. And that just seemed a little less of interest to the media at large. I mean, again, I'm generalizing. There's some exceptions to that. But I thought that was an interesting trend. And I said to myself at the time, if that's the case, I think we're going to see more polarization and you know, more compromise of news quality because it becomes influ influenced by the entertainment value of what's being interviewed. How did the whole project affect you in the end? You know, I was obviously medically trained. I was a professional healthcare consultant at, at quite high levels. I had worked uh, at S uh, Booz Allen Hamilton, and then I was medical director and vice president at ST2, which was a leading healthcare consultancy, which is a leading healthcare consultancy in the United States. Traveled all around the United States and did a lot of work with academic medical centers. And I, my training was at the Harvard Medical School, Mass General Hospital. So uh, I did have a lot of experience, but to actually walk around and talk to everyday people and not necessarily in the academic medical center setting and not, you know, talking to hospital leadership uh, was quite illuminating. So a couple things that I learned, I had originally thought I'd talk to quite a few uninsured people and hear their, you know, very sad stories and so forth. But actually, I ended up talking to quite a few people who did have some form of insurance and they had quite a bit of hardship, even though they had insurance. And so that was actually quite surprising to me. Actually, it wasn't exactly surprising because I had insurance when I was in America and, and it was often strange. You know, they would reimburse, they wouldn't reimburse. You'd have to get into arguments, you'd have to submit papers. And, you know, it was just a big mess. So I certainly was not entirely surprised, but the extent to which it, the system was dysfunctional, even for those who were insured, was quite uh, profoundly disturbing. Uh, the second thing I learned is that, you know, people really wanted some sort of change. And uh, I think that the political response was quite incremental. I mean, Obamacare is actually not such a big change compared to, you know, other systems around the world and what happened in Korea in terms of the changes that uh, allowed them to achieve their system now. I actually think a more radical approach would have been, uh, you know, better. But uh, again, I declined to really present my opinions, but that was what I learned. 
In the early 2000s, South Korea introduced two major health reforms. So one was the merger of insurance societies into a single insurer system, and then there was the separation of medicine prescribing and dispensing. And uh, as you mentioned before, healthcare is financed through uh, the national health insurance covering the entire population. But one thing that I did found was that uh, despite universal coverage of the population, the financial protection and high out-of-pocket payments uh, remain a key policy issue. Is that uh, true? First of all, I want, I want to confirm, like uh, in early 2000s, there were those two major pieces of legislation. I should put a little bit of context. Uh, Obamacare basically uh, mandated for larger companies and, and certain institutions uh, health care insurance, uh, as well as for some individuals, most individuals. And that was actually part of the South Korean process early on, I believe even starting early in the six, 1960s or 70s. And then uh, there were these private insurance companies, and as you said, the merger into national health insurance. So the reason I say that is Obamacare was a kind of very early step that Korea had embarked upon in the 1970s, culminating with the early 2000s, as you said, where they effectively nationalized the insurance system, but kept the rest private. To your point about out-of-pocket costs, so the way it's mostly structured is essentially 80-20. You pay uh, 20% of the bill and the insurance pays 80%. Uh, so there is some out-of-pocket costs. Uh, generally, it is quite reasonable. I, I would imagine if you're you know, in a very a poor income bracket or no income, it, it would be onerous. But we're talking about, uh, for an internal medicine appointment, about $3.50 co-payment. And you fill prescriptions, and they typically are, you know, for basic antibiotics or you know, fairly routine cardiac drugs, they would be also in the $5 U.S. dollar range, month supply and so forth. Uh, those can go up for more complex things. But in general, a lot of healthcare. Even in the specialty level, you go to a eye doctor for eye exam. We're talking again five U.S. dollars copay. If you contrast that to the United States, where you have some high deductible plans, you pay three thousand dollars, five thousand dollars before there's any insurance kicking in, and the insurance kicks in, you still have copays. So I think it's quite reasonable, you know, unless you're in a very poor income bracket. That uh, the copays are not that onerous. I mean, it's not entirely free insurance or free healthcare, which I, I actually think is reasonable to expect. Uh, the consumer, the patient, should have some, you know, sort of part of this. I should say also that some of those copays or most of the copays become tax deductible, so there is some relief in that regard. But I, I don't think they're unreasonable. Of course, it, there will be some percentage that will be a challenge, and perhaps politically some people want it to be completely free, uh, but I think they strike a fairly good balance. Since you've been living in Korea for the last nine years, I am really curious to learn more about how do you perceive the, the culture. One of the things that South Korea is famous for is that it's a beauty-obsessed country. And according to a recent Gallup poll, one in three South Korean women have undergone cosmetic surgery in the ages between 19 and 29. 
Also, the South Korean government is trying to limit the presence of the Korean pop stars on televisions because uh, the stars look so much alike. Do you see any of this translating in the way people take care of their health? What's your uh, overview of the culture and your experience? They have said that Seoul is the plastic surgery capital of the world. I think those phenomena that you mentioned are largely true. I think it's a fairly healthy, conscious society. I mean, you'll see a lot of people walking. There's a lot of parks. Uh, they have exercise machines. There's an active biking culture, active hiking, you know, trails uh, culture. Obesity rates are not that high, although it's increasing. Uh, there's a high degree of smoking and uh, some extent binge drinking, although that has reduced a little bit, I think, from times of the salarymen, you know, getting drunk when they're you know, meetings and evening meetings and so forth. By, so by and large, it's a pretty health conscious uh, culture. And of course, that intersects to some extent with beauty or uh, how people look. I do think it's quite extreme, you know, many cases where there is a uniform ideal of beauty, puts a lot of psychological pressure and uh, some people want to look all the same. And of course, uh, that in the end, to some extent, is not that beautiful. Uh, there is certainly a beauty to be appreciated in diversity. So it's, it's a little bit ironic, but that uh, sort of very common ideal ends up you know, compromising what was the original goal. It's hard for me to comment. You know, I don't have any policy recommendations. I can't comment on you know, what the government is doing relative to K-pop and so forth. But it's certainly a big phenomenon here. Worldwide, the Republic of Korea has by far the highest robot density in the manufacturing industry, a position the country has held since 2010. Does this translate in any way to digital health or elderly care development? Are robots in healthcare as common as there are as they are in Japan, for example? That's correct. In terms of industrial robots, Korea has the highest density. At least that's what I've heard, which uh, you also mentioned. I think uh, robots in healthcare are a little bit less prevalent. I'm not intimately familiar with the case in Japan, but I still think that's an early area. I work actually for a company called Field Robot Technology. I'm their chief scientific officer, and we're developing a healthcare robot along two dimensions. One is uh, care assist, essentially helping nurses or patient care assistants to lift patients especially in you know, America or other countries where obesity rates are very high and lots of aged patients and you have less younger people taking care of them. So those sorts of support is very important. And then the second category is mobility assist is for elderly, disabled, uh, or otherwise mobility challenged people using an exoskeleton wearable robot to help uh, walk around. So care assist, again, uh, exoskeleton wearable robot to help lift patients and then mobility assists for the elderly and disabled to improve their mobility. So we're working on that, and there's interest both from industry as well as hospitals and individuals, but it's uh, still early and a work in progress. Korea is very advanced in terms of infrastructure. A lot of people have talked about 5G, and ironically, Korea is fairly less advanced in the area of telemedicine. And the reason is twofold. One is, as I mentioned earlier in the discussion, access to healthcare is very easy in Korea. To get on a you know, telemedicine and talk to a doctor from your 
home with the webcam or whatever, as opposed to just going down the street to see them. And you don't need an appointment. You just show up and generally you're seen within 20 minutes, maybe less than an hour. It depends. You know, if you show up on Monday morning, you can expect to wait longer. If you show up on a Wednesday afternoon, you might immediately see the doctor. Obviously, it depends. But the point is, you don't need to have a telemedicine solution as compared to, say, in the United States or in you know very geographically dispersed areas, Australia, Indonesia. Africa and, and so forth. But Korea, the value proposition, if you will, for telemedicine is not as strong. The second reason telemedicine is not widespread in Korea is it's in fact illegal. And there's a concern among the neighborhood doctors that if there's telemedicine, the patients will then connect to all the academic medical centers, which are obviously you know fewer and harder to get to, not impossible, but still, it's not like around the corner from your home. So there's a concern that uh, everyone will just use Seoul National University Hospital or you know, any other of the well-known academic medical centers and that the local doctors will suffer because of that. So that uh, doctor lobby and you know, other reasons, as well as I mentioned, have effectively made telemedicine uh, not certified or essentially illegal to dispense medical advice over, you know, the internet that way in Korea. But as I said, it, it's not as necessary. So even if it was implemented and there's this fear of the local doctors of everyone going to the academic medical centers, I still think, you know, it's, it's not as much of a value proposition as other countries. It's probably hard to expect that the political climate would change in order to support telemedicine. I don't think that there's any really strong force pushing for it right now. Now, that being said, I think, as I said, uh, Koreans have uh, quite advanced technologies in this area. So if they are global and they bring some of those solutions globally, then I think they could be su successful. That's, so the irony is if they focus on the Korean market, that's clearly a dead end for them in this area of telemedicine. And the same is true for other companies from outside who want to get into Korea and they think, well, it's high tech. Let me do telemedicine or, or something to support telemedicine. Uh, it's not going to be obviously a very promising strategy. What about blockchain in healthcare? South Korea remains the third largest market for virtual currency behind the United States and Japan, and uh, a total of $6.8 billion in cryptocurrencies changed hands in January, according to the data provided by Mesari. I think those statements are correct, and there are you know, a diversity of companies involved in medical blockchain. I think that uh, to the extent that those blockchain companies are connected to cryptocurrencies and there was a substantial crash in those markets all of last year, uh, affected quite a few of them, I think that there has been some stalling of progress in that area. It's still very early, and I think uh, things were ramping up, but progress has, has significantly stalled. Just to wrap up, um, what would you say other countries around the world can learn from South Korea in terms of digital health development? Two things. They should study the actual uh, healthcare system. I think that that's 
been, you know, very successful. I would also encourage them to look at, you know, one hospital in particular, Seoul National University, Bundang Hospital. Like, uh, they have implemented a lot of processes. That's on the, the EMR, as I mentioned, and some digital healthcare. As I said, they're not doing telemedicine because that's not legal. But uh, I would encourage them to look at that, and I'm happy to, you know, facilitate that uh, if that's of interest. This was the last part of a short series about digital health in Asia. Coming up soon, a series about artificial intelligence in healthcare. Stay tuned. Visit the website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com and stay informed about the global development of digital health. <laughs>